We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. You have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello! You are listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are bringing you our last engineering episode from Tasmania of 2021. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman, and I'm joined by my co-host and engineering expert, Dr. Sarah Lydon. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa people, as we record on Lutruwita. I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on where you are listening across Australia. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So today we'll be talking about satellite and engineering with our expert guest, Brian Salmon. So, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit more about what we're going to be talking about and our expert guest, please? Brian comes originally from South Africa and studied at the University of Pretoria and did his Master's of Engineering and PhD degrees in electronic engineering there. So, Brian's interested in information theory, coding theory, machine learning and graph theory. So, welcome, Brian. Thank you, Sarah. Very topical interest there, Brian. So, what will we be talking about, Sarah? So today we're going to be talking a little bit about satellites and how these can be used to see changes in land use and also to see the ocean. Oh, cool. So I'd imagine you'd need something like machine learning because there'd be so much data to do something like that. Uh, Yes. Yeah, awesome. So Brian, can you tell us a bit about what type of engineering work you do and what inspired you to become an engineer? Well, Sarah, as a little kid, I like to play with little gizmos and gadgets I was part of the generation where cell phones came out as little kids. Um, we had televisions, we had computers, and the internet just started becoming connected. So as a little kid, it was a lot of fun just seeing all this happen around me and uh, being able to play with these type of things, even at the school level. So as a little kid there, I just like to tinker away on things. And so what led you to become an electronics engineer then? When I reached high school, I was asking around of what type of careers can be pursued with having a strong mathematical and science background. But upon investigation, people also ask, what do I like to do in my spare time? So I said, it's very good if you can find your passion and make that your work. And then when I started to explain to them about my tinkering abilities, they said to me that maybe you should look into engineering. And of course, I looked at all the mainstreams and I saw that electronic engineering was most aligned to my favoritism. So what do you enjoy most about the engineering work that you do now? I like solving puzzles. I like receiving a puzzle that I don't know how to fix it and then using the skills I've acquired over the years and doing a lot of experimentations, it might sometimes take a bit of time, but you do find the answer. So what's a recent puzzle that you've been working on? Uh, one of the recent puzzles I've been working on is how to model a baby's heartbeat. So we have very conventional ways of seeing how a little ECG uh, signal is built up from something called a QRS complex. But upon viewing it from a different angle, it looks like a control system. With this control system, you can then have a much better appreciation of changes in the heartbeat. For example, when we were trying to find uh, early onsets of bradycardia in little babies. So for our listeners, could you explain a little bit more what a control system is? So when you have, for example, some system like a car or a remote or something, It can be represented by some kind of mathematical model. And this system will respond in a certain way. For example, the heartbeat will pulse in a certain way. And we try to model that so we have a better description of what it looks like. Once we know what a description looks like, we can predict what it should be doing. 
And as soon as it starts deviating off the script, or it's not doing what we think it should be doing, then we start asking questions, where's it going? What's it doing? And then by investigating certain, in this case, medical conditions, we can see that this leads to a typical, like a bradycardia event. And then by that, we ask the next question is, if we know what it's supposed to be doing and we know where it's going, is there a way to control it? So meaning we can force it back into the original state. We want to keep it to keep the baby healthy. So to think about that a different way, I've always wondered this with engineering generally, because we talk a lot on this show about modeling, because modeling and maths and engineering really crosses across all of the science content that we do nearly. So I've always wondered when we're trying to do something like a control system and we're essentially trying to define normal in terms of all of the types of things or variables that are going to happen, how much of each one's going to happen to achieve the outcome that we want, which is a normal heartbeat in this instance, or it might be a car driving at a certain speed and getting to a destination. So is that what you're essentially trying to map all the variables that happen within an, a, a desired event so that and then you understand how much of each of those things happen to achieve normal. So then if normal doesn't happen, you can be like, oh, well, how do we get it back to normal? Exactly that. Normal is what we as humans define as normal. Mm. So what we want to see. If you look at a baby's heartbeat or if you look at a car driving in a straight line, what do we define as normal? Now, driving straight is very hard. No car can drive perfectly straight. So there's a bit of deviation off. It's the same with the heartbeat. Every baby, every human being has got a different heartbeat. So what we try to do is we try to describe it with mathematics because mathematics is actually a language. It's nothing else really than describing what we see. And then, like you say, we then try to get enough experimental data to better define what we define as normal. And then we start looking for cases where we deviate off the normal. Now, in some cases... It appears to be deviating out of the normal, but it's just a, no a new normal that we found. And other times it deviates off and we find something new that leads, in this case, for example, like a medical condition. And then we try to find mathematical descriptors that will tell us what leads to that. And then we start looking for those in all of, for example, our babies that we're monitoring. Cool. I have a question, but I don't know if it's relevant. What kind of things are a mathematical descriptor? Okay, so let's have a look at maybe heartbeats. It's a pretty standard one. So you get the little ECG pulse, the QRS mm -hmm. complex. Then there's a time period before the next one comes. And the time gap between the two, which we, we call the period or the RR interval, that is defining our heart rate, how fast the heart is beating. So what is a normal heart rate? So for example, for a baby that we're typically investigating, it's roughly 180 beats per minute. Wow, that's heaps. Yep. It's a prematurely born baby. But if you look at the babies, they all fluctuate between 170, 180, 185. So we have to create like a baseline where we define as normal. However, when we start deviating out of the normal, like we get 160, 150, we start asking the questions, that is a descriptor. The time lag is becoming bigger, which is a descriptor that may lead to problems. In some cases, it comes back with no other explanation. And other times, unfortunately, it does go down all the way to 80, 70 beats per second. And that's usually when uh, emergency is declared. That's really interesting. Thanks, because that actually really helped like, thinking about the number of beats per minute, the time between those beats and all of those variables. And it's when you talk about the things that Sarah mentioned in your introduction of that you're interested in like information theory and coding theory, there's lots of numbers that come into that and trying to make sense of this 
mass of information um, to something that's meaningful. So that sounds awesome. Stick with us and we'll be talking more to Brian about satellites in just a moment. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about viewing the Earth from space with satellites. My name is Sarah Lydon, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Brian Summon. So, Brian, can you tell us a little bit now about a project that you've worked on related to satellites and engineering? Sure, Sarah. So, a couple of years ago, I joined the Remote Sensing Research Unit in the Morocco Institute uh, back in South Africa, and we were tasked to develop satellite-based applications more specifically to Earth observation. So for people who are not aware, we've been launching satellites into space for the last few decades. A lot of uh, specialized fields are very interested in looking out into space, but there's also a field of study of looking back at the Earth. Now, there's a lot of advantages of looking back at the Earth. If you think about if we had to monitor forestry, like what is the wellness or the health of a forest, we can send out some environmental experts They can go have a look, take a couple of samples, count a couple of trees, and write a very comprehensive report. The next step we can do is we can chart at a plane. They can fly out, take an aerial photography of the forestry, then report back on any changes. However, both of these approaches requires humans to be actively involved. Where with a satellite, if we launch it up into space, we have a much broader view of the Earth. We can see much more of what's going on And these satellites are either A, orbiting the Earth, so they come around every oh so often, or B, they're what we call geostationary, where they are far enough from the Earth that they can can follow the, the Earth at the same orbit speed, and we can see one area all the time. Why would you want to see one area all the time rather than like, why would you choose different approaches like that? Because for me, it kind of makes sense to be seeing different parts of the world all the time because then you can maybe get a bigger picture of what's happening globally rather than following one little bit. So it's really based on the application you're trying to solve. Let's talk about monitoring vessels in the ocean. At any given point in time, there's a few thousand vessels in the ocean. They're all either transporting goods, doing fishing, like uh, nice sporting events. And unfortunately, sometimes they also do things that are illegal. And for us, it is all about who's out there and what they're doing. Now, the easy way was in the past is we installed transponders on boats. So the boat has to have a transponder. If something happens to them, they send out an emergency and we come and rescue them. However, why would people turn off their transponders? Why would people spoof their GPS coordinates so we can't see where they exactly are? So a lot of people were doing interesting activities with their transponders. The other thing also is a transponder has a limited range. So you get two things, what they call a terrestrial transponder that sends to land-based receiving stations, and then you have satellite-based transponders. Now, to answer your question, if a satellite's going into orbit and it's orbiting the Earth, only when it's over the vessels transponding the messages up can we receive them. As soon as the satellite's gone, we don't receive those messages anymore. Where if we have a satellite just looking at one spot all the time, we will get all the messages for that spot continuously, uninterrupted. So we can then target certain spots of the Earth and get continuous feedback from that part. Where if it's orbiting, we have to pick our orbits and we are time restricted when we get certain things. That makes perfect sense. Thank you, Brian. Going back to that example of like monitoring a forest, what would be the advantages over using something like, you know, more modern technology like a drone? Obviously an autonomous drone, so you're removing that people element. The drones go hand in hand with satellites. 
but to better understand it is to think of your phone when you're taking a photo. So when I'm taking a photo of someone, I get the whole scene in, but everything is at a lower resolution, where if I zoom in on a certain area, I get a very high definition picture of one area, but I can't see anything else. It's the same with the drone. The drones, and I've seen a lot of advances with the drones where they were autonomous flying, you can pre-program their flight paths, they take off, they fly, they take really high resolution imagery and they come back and we retrieve the data from them, but they have to come back where we have to then launch multiple drones to cover larger areas. Now with a satellite, for example, one of the new satellites launched by the European Space Agency, it has about a 400 kilometer swath width. So it means that at any point in time, we're acquiring 400 kilometers worth of visual data in one go, which will require quite a few drones to see. So what engineering principles and practices are involved in the work that you do using these satellite images? So a deeper understanding of uh, physics, more specifically wavelengths. So we have a lot of waves. So you think about how do we visually see anything? We have the sun that emits a certain radiation. That radiation goes through space. It then penetrates our atmosphere. Some of that wavelength gets absorbed by the atmosphere and the remainders hit the Earth. Based on that, certain objects absorb it and reflects it out. We see color based on what is either absorbed or reflected back to us. Same concept as a satellite. The sun radiation would go through the atmosphere, hit the planet, and then we'd go back into space. And while it's going back into space, the satellite captures it. So then we have a lot of photosensitive diodes that then basically records the light intensity that's seen. From there, we have to do a lot of uh, digital conversion. We convert the readings into some kind of electronic format and then we store them. And after that, if it's an orbiting satellite, we have to then download the data. So we have these receiving stations on the planet. Um, you'll see that there's a lot of these in the North Pole, a lot of contention between countries of who can receive where. But at the end of the day, the satellite comes over, we download the data, and then comes the mass process of processing this data. Now, I wish the photos looked as good as they do on my phone, but they look pretty bad because there's a lot of different effects that has happened. One of them is the effects of the atmosphere. We have a double effect, it goes twice through the atmosphere. We have like different aerosols, cloud conditions, for example, you cannot see through a cloud. So, and there's a whole division in America, in the University of uh, Wisconsin, where one of the big questions they're asking is, what is a cloud and where are they? Because if there is a cloud, it means the satellites cannot receive them very well. Another important uh, question that NASA asks a lot is where is the sun right now? Because the sun is what's illuminating our scenes and also the clouds are obscuring our scenes. So we have to invert for all of these atmospheric conditions, which is quite an odious task. And then also, I don't know if you guys have closely looked at the photos you take, but when you take a photo, the thing that's right in front of you, perfectly in the middle, is perfectly represented. Whereas you go to the border edges of the image, things start warping in shape because the camera lens is not made to perfectly acquire every area at the same resolution. And at a 400 kilometer swath on a satellite, it gets pretty bad at the edges. So what types of things do you do to process that data? Like is this where maybe coding theory or machine learning comes into it? Just like, for me, that sounds like a phenomenal amount of data to try and even begin to process. I, I struggle to even think about like what would be some of the first steps. So one of the first steps is we need a controlled environment. So what they would do is they would identify certain land masses 
that they know exactly what it looks like. For example, we once had to install a square cement block, a pretty big one, on a piece of field so that when the satellite came over, we knew exactly how big the square was and what it looked like. And we could also see any color distortions on the block. Uh, you also got some famous landmarks that you can use to identify certain areas. This is much bigger than man-made landmarks. We're talking here about mountains and rivers and things like that. From there, you start deriving these models. You say to yourself, I want to see this. I am seeing this. They're not the same the difference. So then they derive all these different types of models. One of them is called a bidirectional reflective distribution reflection model. It's just kind of like how do we invert for the camera imperfections, the atmosphere imperfections, and any other distortions that we don't know about. Of course, some of these institutions are very nice. They also give us quality flags. It's basically telling us how bad or how good this image is. And then from there onwards, we then get an image. They also process these images to different type of applications. For example, if you're interested in the ocean, they have a special processing uh, process for it. So they have different models, different characteristics they do to process it for the ocean. But if you do that same process to land-based uh, products, it looks pretty bad. And then they have other ones for land where are you interested in snow, are you interested in mountains, are you interested in forestry? They have different processes for each one of those. It's pretty involved. So could you tell us a little bit more about some of these applications and what might, what might be involved in them? I could tell some of the applications I worked on. So the first one was land change. As we know, we are humans, we're on this planet, and we're all pretty busy. A lot of things are continuously changing our um, land mass uh, with developments and improvements and changes. Unfortunately, we don't always know where all of this is happening, and this is where a big eye in the sky is always a good thing. So a satellite comes over, and we register change. Now, to go a little deeper here, as we have satellites and, let's say, your drones, you also have different types of satellites. You have high resolution, medium resolution, and low resolution. And it's the same concept. A low resolution can get a much bigger area coverage than a high resolution one. So we were working on a system where we were detecting change with the low resolution ones because we can see more. And then we task a high resolution satellite to have a closer look. Unfortunately, back in the day, we had to pay a lot of money if we wanted to task a high resolution. So some of the changes that we found, we found a lot of human settlement expansion. We saw where new towns and little suburbs were being formed. We were using the information to inform the local governments of any special services that they want to cater for those people. We also unfortunately found some uh, illegal mining in some places where we had, it's called these mobile mines. They just moved all the equipment in. They start mining without any permission. And once the local authorities uh, catches on, they just move on. We found some unfortunate uh, areas of deforestation where we see that certain human impacts was encroaching on certain forestry. We saw a lot of burn scars. Actually, this was a big one. In some parts of Africa, we have a lot of lightning storms and the lightning would actually affect uh, the power grid. So what happens, the lightning, stri lightning strike will get near a power line, it will affect the power and the uh, power station has to turn off or they have to redirect the power. Another problem was fire. We can detect lightning with little microphones on the ground, but the fire was a little bit harder. However, on a satellite, detecting a large fire is pretty easy in the sense that there's vegetation there right now. And because fire is such a disruptive uh, force of nature, the very next satellite image, it's all gone. And you see a mass drop in vegetation. And then we just notify the local authorities of the impeding big fire near the areas. There's a few. There's still many more. Yeah, that sounds like heaps of applications and like the options could be limitless when you have these like high quality images that can be applied to lots of different 
research questions. So in terms of these applications that you've just told us about, what kind of machine learning or artificial intelligence techniques are used? Again, it's based on the application, but just relating it quickly back to the satellites we just spoke about, we have all these images that are being downloaded. And I think sometimes people don't have an appreciation for the amount of data that gets generated. For example, I was working at one time with one satellite. It's called the Motor Series. It's, a, it's two satellites, Aqua and Terra. And one of these satellites would generate about uh, seven terabytes of images per day. So we had a mass issue of storing of it. And even more importantly, to make sense of all of this. And this is where, well, like machine learning methods really come in. So you would have one of your stakeholders or uh, research groups that are interested in a particular type of problem. For example, I want to have a look at enlarging settlements. Then what we would do is we would analyze the, the problem using uh, statistical methods and we identify which machine learning method would be best for this type of problem. For example, uh, methods that I've used were support vector machines, neural networks. And now I know there's a lot of interest currently in deep learning in this field. So we all deploy our different type of networks, we train them, and then we try to get a high accuracy towards what we're looking for. And this requires uh, quite an in-depth understanding of the mathematics and how the modeling works. If you've done it right and you with a little bit of luck, it works pretty well. And then all of a sudden you have an all-seeing uh, eye in the sky that's looking for one or two particular things for you. Could you just briefly explain what machine learning actually is for our listeners? Machine learning is a way of moving it beyond a simple fuzzy logic system. So what would happen is uh, when a satellite takes an image, it's not a, what we call an RGB image like what we would perceive. They take a photo in multiple spectral bands. So we're measuring different type of wavelengths in different type of little segments. And from a human eye, we can project images like that, but we can only take three of those bands and make them a color image. If you go to more colors, then we can't visualize them very well. And then we go into what we call multidimensional or hyperdimensional viewing space. And as humans, we can't make sense of that. So what we need to do is we need something else to look for us. So what we do is we take these images and we apply them as what they call an input to machine learning method. And then on the output of the machine learning method, we define something called a semantic label. We say, we want to call this a road or a building. So this is what we want to call it, and this is what you have. And on the inside of this machine learning method, we basically have a set of either linear or nonlinear equations. Now, that's a slightly another long conversation to have, but it's basically just a set of equations that then map towards this output you want. Now, initially, it doesn't map. So you give it a random input, that's your images. You give it a random output that it's never seen before. You give it a set of thousands upon thousands, sometimes millions of equations. And these equations have coefficients. And you just say to the machine, I don't know the values of these coefficients. Let us try and figure it out. And this is where machine learning comes in. The machine then uses a set of algorithms. It's like a set of recipes. And it tries to get this input to match to your output. And there's many different ways. There's many different results that come from it. So sometimes you get multiple results leading to your answer. Sometimes you have to look really hard and you also just find one answer. Stay with us for part three and we'll delve more into all the things related to Brian's work on use of satellites.
You're listening to That's What I Call Science and we're talking about viewing the Earth from space with satellites. My name is Sarah Lydon and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Brian Sermon. So Brian, you've told us lots about different applications of using these satellite images, particularly around land use changes. Could you tell us a little bit about how this can be used to help move towards a more sustainable future? Well, that's a very good question, Sarah. I can give you one example that I saw personally in one of the solutions we found. Oh, actually, I'll give you two examples. So the first one is, remember I told you about the fire detection. We were looking for burn scars and things. This one particular day, we got a live uh, image from a satellite. Uh, onto our, It was downloaded to our roof. Processed it, and we saw there was an active fire only a few kilometers away from our building. So we thought we'd quickly jump into our car and drive and have a look at it. We drove out to the area. It was about... 12 kilometers north from where we were. We got there and we could see the massive fire down the hill and we started ringing doorbells and all the people came out and asked us what we were here for. We, we said to them, we're just here to investigate the fire. Could we have uh, permission to come on their property? And the first thing they all said to us, what fire? So they were unaware of a massive couple of hundred square kilometers fire just happening a few hundred meters away from them. First of all, it is more sustainable in the sense that we know where these fires are. We can, first of all, make it safer for people. But additionally, too, the sustainability comes in more to the fact that from this, we compile a report every year to tell the local power utility company where these fires are occurring on a regular basis. And what they did then was they made a plan of where to do controlled fires. And what we saw after a few years is that the damage caused by fires were reduced by if memory serves me right, about roughly 90%, and fire became a non-event in those areas. So is this damage to the power system? Power system, properties, any other infrastructure that would not do very well if there was a fire nearby. Another one is, like we said about the human settlement detection. Some of these communities don't have a great support structure, and most people, they're also very nomadic, meaning they move around from area to area with very little support. Now, what happens is they would move into an area, they would start gathering firewood, drinking up the water. But if local governments knew they were there, they could then supply them with certain, let's say, firewood and water. Instead of chopping down the local forest, we have tree plantations that generate these trees at a very good rate. We just take those trees or wood to them to keep them nice and warm at night. That's great. It's really good to have gotten an overview of how satellites are used and the different applications that can happen right from the theory down to creating like real world change. Thanks so much, Sarah, for another excellent engineering episode and to our expert guest, Dr. Brian Salmon. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-ready content. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please remember that you can catch all of our previous episodes, 137 of them, wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.